That's what I have on my list. Anybody have anything else? The sparks. The children are all safe. Okay. Pray for the Sparks family. So that was Stephanie and Delilah. Rachel, do you have your hand up? Your cousin. That's a phrase. Sure. Anything else? Okay. Yeah. She's a little under the weather. Um, <laughs> we spent five hours in a pet hospital yesterday. <laughs> so um, if she's feeling better, I'll, I'm going to go get her for the morning service. So. I'm waiting to hear from you. So. All right. Uh, Brother Cliff, could you take these things before our Lord, please?
Well, we're still working our way through Judges, so if you haven't turned in your Bible yet, um, turn to Judges chapter 6. Last week we saw that um, Gideon was approached um, by the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He wasn't sure exactly... uh, what the encounter was all about, so he asked for a sign, and uh, he was allowed to break bread or have a meal, uh, make an offering, a peace offering, and if it had been just a typical, if there is such a thing, a typical angel, uh, they would have refused that worship, Um, but being Christ, uh, part of the triune God, Um, He found that uh, acceptable. And so we see Christ accepting his uh, offering, and uh, we see that uh, communion had been reestablished between God and God's people. And we notice that uh, in the process of crying out to God uh, for relief from the Midianites, that God uh, sent a prophet instead of just total deliverance. 
And, and with that prophet, uh, he is showing the people their sin and that judgment will come upon them because of their sin. And yet, with that judgment comes the opportunity of repentance. So even every time a judgment is announced, there's an opportunity to ask for forgiveness of our sins, to reestablish that communication and communion with God um, through his presence and in his grace. So judgment shows the grace of God and the opportunities we have. Gideon makes the offering. He used up a lot of his wheat uh, in the presentation of the unleavened bread. He, he used a uh, young goat. And um, again, we're dealing with a time of want, time of need. And um, <clears throat> these were precious things uh, at that time uh, when your family is, is hurting. And so he trusts God for, for deliverance, and he trusts God for provision. And um, so he's going to be asked to make another uh, sacrifice here in a minute, and uh, he's going to have to trust God that he will continue to provide for him, for his family, for his tribe, and the nation as well. <clears throat> so what we're seeing here is that before... God deals with the invaders, the Midianites, the Malachites, the Ishmaelites. Before they can deal with them, they must deal with the false god, false worship, the sin of Baalism. So the first battle is not against the Midianites, but it's against Baal. And it's the Lord who, in, who initiates this battle. It's the Lord who takes uh, the initiative to, to deal with this issue, to go after Baal and, and to uh, show that he is a, a false god. And so um, we have some technical difficulties here, so we'll bear with us. But uh, verse 25, uh, we'll start our reading here. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, even the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took men, ten men, of his servants, and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, that he did it by night. So here again we see some important details that God gives us. And they're important, and so we should take a little bit closer look at them uh, as they pertain to the text here. It's important that Gideon use the second bull. It's important that the bull uh, be seven years old. It's important that the altar be built on the stronghold where the Baal altar was at. It is important that the same bull that tears down the altar of Baal be sacrificed to the Lord. If these details were not important, they would not be included here. Uh, so I think it's important that we uh, do justice to this text by taking a closer look at uh, the implication of how these things all fit together. First of all, we, we notice that God's command came at night. Uh, we've already mentioned uh, the sunrise theme in Scripture when we uh, looked at Judges uh, 5.31, where Deborah, in the last uh, line of her song, says, 
but may those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. God's appearance at night are signs that glory is going to be coming in the morning. Even in creation, there was first evening and then morning. But in the world under sin, night signifies the darkness of sin's dominion. And God is going to conquer that dominion. God's command came the same night as he appeared to Gideon. So I think that what that tells us, when fellowship with God is restored, when communion is reestablished, that reformation must begin immediately. When God draws a sinner to himself, when you say that you repent, you're doing a 180, you're doing a complete turnaround, you're leaving that behind, going in a different direction. And so it's part of this significance that it uh, happens uh, right away, immediately. It signifies uh, that there's a, uh, a reformation turning about. And notice where it happened. It happened at home, or with Gideon first, and then later with his household, and later with his townspeople. That's true with us. It happens individually. We hope that we're a witness to members of our family and uh, <clears throat> that God would work in their lives and that that would then in turn spread to other friends and relatives. So we see here God launches a direct assault against Baal. It's God's doing. It's God's initiative. And God is in control here. He has a plan. Baal's altar and the carved pillar of his wife, Asherah, must be wrecked, and God's altar must be put in its place. Gideon's and Gideon's household must change sides in this great spiritual war. And that's, again, a picture of God's grace doing that. The fact that the altar of Baal belonged to Joash indicates that Gideon had probably been brought up in a Baal-worshipping household. Now, he's probably had some lip service to Jehovah God. Um, I mean, he is a member of the uh, Manasseh tribe. And he probably was taught that uh, God created the earth. Um, so... But there's going to have to be a change because it was Joash's uh, altar that it was being destroyed. And God is going to have to work, do the work here, not man's work. So what we see here is that, uh, uh, that uh, God's altar has to be built on that stronghold where all could see it, a public confession of faith. And Joash and his people... Uh, for all this time had been seeking uh, prosperity, fertility uh, from a false god. Um, they'd been worshiping uh, Baal in a false manner instead of and rejecting uh, God Almighty, the true and living God. And what has it got them? They're on the verge of starvation. So if they turn and seek after God, um, God the Father, then uh, their desires for prosperity and food and uh, relief from starvation and oppression will uh, most likely change if they submit themselves to God. Some Bible translations uh, do not have the sense of the Hebrew here, and I certainly know, know nothing about Hebrew. But some of the translations says there are two bulls involved rather than it was the second bull that did the work. The fact that the bull was seven years old ties to the oppression of Midian, having been under control for seven years in the land of the promised land of Israel. 
And it also correlates to the seven years of apostasy of the men and women uh, of uh, Israel. So <clears throat> there was 40 years of peace and prosperity under Deborah. The people did not teach their kids the next generation properly. And now it's been another seven years of oppression. So we're talking about 50 years here since uh, Deborah. And so the people have fallen back into sin, fallen back into Baal worship, <coughs> falling back into apostasy. In order to uh, atone for this apostasy, in order to atone for this sin, Leviticus 4, 13 through 21 tells us the nation uh, needs to atone for it by sacrificing a bull. So the bull that destroys Baal is the same as the bull that is sacrificed. So again, we have symbolism in, in, uh, here with, the, with Christ. It is Christ who sacrifices himself, but through that sacrifice destroys Satan completely and utterly. And this uh, sacrifice... Uh, of this bull uh, was a complete sacrifice, a total uh, judgment and devotion to destruction, a whole burnt sacrifice, not cut up into portions like some of the other sacrifices are. This is similar to what they did with Jericho and Hebron. They totally destroyed it with fire, and so we have the same idea presented here with this sacrifice of this bull as... as uh, as was written in the scripture. Now, <clears throat> I think the important thing here is that we see that Gideon obeyed God. Gideon is a man. And he has emotions and he has uh, fears. And so he is a man. But the important thing, even with those emotions, he obeyed God. <clears throat> Now, he did it at night um, because of that fear. But it may be a, uh, a reasonable thought if you think about it. If he'd done it during the day, probably he would have been stopped by the townspeople or maybe other members of his family. But he, he did it at night, but he obeyed God just the same. Now, he took ten men out of his household, servants from his household, to help him do this, and <clears throat> I think Mark Twain once said that three people keep a secret, two of them have to be dead. Um, that's what Gideon faced here. He took ten men to do this in secret at night, and ten men are not going to keep a secret. Um, and so as we see here in the next verse, the townspeople finds out uh, about the destruction of the uh, altar of Baal. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. And for he has torn down the altar of the Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will contend for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, the name Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he tore down his altar. <clears throat> 
So Deborah's prayer from 531, as I read earlier, um, uh, has come about. Uh, the sunrise is revealed, redemption accomplished. Baal has been destroyed, the altar has been destroyed. <clears throat> A sacrifice, acceptable sacrifice has been made. And true religion, the religion of, of God, uh, has been uh, restored. However, just like on our culture and society, not everybody's happy with that idea. A lot of people love to continue to live in their sin, as we see here uh, some of the townspeople wanting to kill Gideon. But I think what's surprising here is that Joash follows the lead of his son. Uh, this in itself is a remarkable thing, I think, and it shows again the grace of God, that God has changed the heart of Joash and brought him unto himself. The men want to put Gideon to death, but Joash reminds them that Baal is supposedly a god and should be able to take care of himself. And I think that's what the meaning of verse 31 was, but it's kind of a difficult passage to translate from the Hebrew. So let me uh, paraphrase uh, what Jim Jordan said from his commentary on this verse. <clears throat> Quote, Does Baal need you to plead for him? Does Baal need you to deliver him? Listen to me, those of you who want to contend for Baal. Let him, the one who has attacked Baal, be found dead by tomorrow morning. Give Baal 24 hours to avenge himself. And if Baal is a god, let him fight for himself, since someone has torn down his altar. End of quote. Of course, Baal is powerless to do anything about this, and God has protected Gideon from the men of the city. And I think if you think about it, this is kind of a forerunner of Elijah dealing with the Baal priests in 1 Kings, waiting for Baal to act, and nothing happens. Jerubable means let Baal contend. It's used as Gideon's nickname. So it's a constant reminder uh, to everyone that Gideon was a Baal fighter. Gideon was marching on for the one true God and let Baal stop him if he can. Just a comment of application here for our own selves. I think we're all kind of weak and fearful Gideons, if you think about it. <clears throat> but we are God's children if you are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. But before we can really be effective for God, we all have our own altars to tear down in our own lives, things that we have set up that we don't want to touch, little bales that we tend to still serve. So in order for us to be effective, we have to do uh, some soul searching, meditating on our own lives, let God tear down those bales and those altars that we might be fully committed to him. The same could be said of the Christian community, the church. The church today have secular altars that have been built inside the community. Um, if we're going to fight against humanism in America, we have to deal with those things. Remember, the New Testament says judgment will come first on the house of God. That's where we need to start uh, before we're going to be totally effective for God. But we see God continuing to encourage Gideon and his weak faith. It is faith nonetheless. And so what an encouragement this is to Gideon to see his father and his family uh, come, uh, come around him to support him and to serve the Lord. 
So remember, it was God who was leading the fight, and it's God who makes Gideon's fearful yet faithful actions a great success. Verse 33. Then all of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abrazarites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers through throughout Manasseh. They also called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Well, it's that time of year when the three uh, tribes invade and again uh, raid and conquer and steal and plunder um, the land of Israel. Going to the fair. Just as they arrive, however, God strikes. And what does he do? He, the spirit is imparted to Gideon. This anointing makes him a type of a Messiah, an anointed one. All the judges were called and anointed by God. The fullness of this is seen with the anointing of Christ at his baptism. Though all the judges were anointed, there is sometimes specific reason why we pay attention to uh, the time and the place of their calling and their anointing. So I believe that the reason attention is called here in the case of Gideon has to do again with the symbolic uh, symbolism and the typology of what's going on here. God has now finished. He's done the primary work needed for man's redemption. That primary work entails sacrifice for sin and the definitive destruction of the enemy. God has done his part, so man is called to step in to do his, which involves basically a mopping up exercise, mopping up after the enemy that God has destroyed, and continue to worship God and grow in righteousness. That's what he's asked to do. The Spirit is given after the primary work of redemption has been accomplished. Again, this sequence finds its fulfillment in the New Testament when it's after Christ has accomplished eternal salvation <coughs> that uh, he has totally destroyed Satan. Then the Spirit is poured upon the church at Pentecost and growth in the mopping up work of Satan's minions are charged to the church to take over. So again, I think uh, it's important, one of the most important things here is that the church must do uh, not defeat her enemies, but to destroy the idols in her heart before she can be used by God uh, in a marvelous way. So when Baal is gone and the altars of the Lord are renewed, the enemies will fall rapidly enough. So with the destruction of Baal, the battle is already won, really. God has accomplished his task. Though Gideon does not realize it, the hardest part is already behind him. The anointing of the Spirit here is literally a clothing. When the Spirit comes upon a man, he flows down from him as a garment does. It's like the anointing of the uh, Spirit with oil in the old covenant. 
where it flows down from the head and the beard and onto the shoulders of the anointed one. So the result is that man is recreated after the image of God by the work of the Spirit. So Gideon is such a new man now. Much of what happens to us uh, when we come to the Lord in salvation. The old man is put away, the new man has been put on. <clears throat> the blowing of the trumpet uh, was the way Israel was summoned, and Gideon may have done it uh, himself, or he may have had a bugler, I don't know. But either way, he's probably questioning who's going to come. After all, I'm the least of my father's family, and my family is the least of Manasseh, and Manasseh is the least of, of all the tribes. Who's going to come when I call? Well, the first to rally uh, to his side here is his uh, family and, and hometown. Uh, all those men who had seen Gideon as a child uh, now follow him as their leader. Uh, this is a required uh, a huge amount of grace uh, because remember just a few hours earlier um, they were going to kill him. Uh, but with God all things are possible. So you can see up at the top Naphtali, Zebulun, and uh, Asher are all coming down to Ophrah, where uh, Gideon is at. And then Manasseh, his tribe, is coming up from the south. And they're answering the call uh, for Gideon. So what a tremendous encouragement this must be for Gideon. Um, and so again, God is strengthening him, strengthening his faith <clears throat> by uh, this response. As you can see, the tribe of Ephraim is down here at the south. Um, it's not in the passage uh, that uh, Gideon called them to help. Um, Ephraim was always trying to be dominant among all the other tribes. And... Uh, I think they were just kind of ill-tempered, and Gideon just didn't want to deal with it. So he ended up having enough help uh, by calling the other tribes in. So uh, verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If thou wilt deliver Israel by my hand, as thou hast spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, Notice it's on the threshing floor. It's not in the wine press anymore. <clears throat> if there is dew on the fleece only and it's dry on all the ground, then I will know that thou wilt deliver Israel by my hand. And as thou hast spoken, and it was so. Just, and it was so. God, God did it. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let thine anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with it, the fleece. Let it now be dry out on the, on the fleece, and let it be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew on all the ground. <clears throat> this passage has um, caused some great deal of speculations as to its prophetic meaning. The dew on the fleece but not on the ground is supposed to portray the Old Covenant, Israel being the fleece and the nations being the ground. 
the reversal is supposed to be the portrayal of the new covenant, God favoring the nations with his life-giving water, but Israel is dried up. Um, I personally don't see that in the scripture. <laughs> I, I think that's a little bit of a reach. Maybe in some contexts that would work, but um, I, don't sim I simply don't see that part of the story of Gideon uh, hinting at the future relationships with God and Israel and the nations. But that's my opinion. However, what is interesting, I think, in dealing with this uh, miracle is the idea of miracles itself. The one true living God and Baalism, especially with regard to miracles. The religion of the Bible is a religion that ascribes all events to personal actions on the part of personal, accountable agents such as God, angels, and men. The <clears throat> eternally active triune God brings all these things to pass, including miracles. And he does so by his eternal activity, not by the use of some impersonal means. God is directly involved. God is performing these things. God is directing them, and God has a plan to use miracles. Baalism, on the other hand, is a religion that credits all events to impersonal methods on the part of impersonal powers that they have created uh, these false gods and goddesses. So like I said, Gideon had been raised in Baalism. Joash had no doubt taught him that God created the world, but that nature ran it. Nature, or Baal, has a process. The sun rises in the east, sets in the west. There's four seasons. Springtime we get rain, the rivers flood, we get fertile land. It's all in the process. Nature. So there's no room for miracles in Baalism. So what is a miracle? Well, <clears throat> a deistic view of miracles, and that's somebody who believes that there is a God, but God created it and then set it into motion and let it uh, run wild by itself based on certain laws. Um, deistic view of miracles is that the, there's a disruption in the process of nature that God had originally established at creation. But I think a proper Christian view of miracles sees it as God's acting in a way different from the way he usually acts. God does not set aside any physical laws or laws of nature in miracles. For there really is no such laws or processes to set aside. The importance of miracles in Scripture is that they pointedly demonstrate that God is the eternally active God and that the universe is not self-sustaining. It's not self-created. God is active in the universe every moment of every day with every atom that he ever created. So, in effect, miracles refute Baalism. Uh, whether pantheistic, where the universe is self-originating, self-created, or deistic, where God created it and then let it run by itself, any of those things are destroyed with the idea of miracles. Because none of those things can have miracles within them. But... Uh, Modern Baalists today, including some people in modern science, will say, well, it's obvious, they say, that the universe is not all process. Uh, there would not be any progress <clears throat> or ever any change if there was not also something called chance. 
what you call a miracle, we explain in terms of chance. Chance may reverse gravity on some occasion, maybe. Chance may take a fleece dry while the ground is covered with dew. There's a chance of that. These people would say, to do justice to Bayless, you need to put process together with chance. Impersonal process plus impersonal chance equals the real world. That's where a lot of these ideas are coming from today. If you want to spend a real good study on this, uh, read R.C. Sproul's book, Not a Chance. Um, they, attract, they give the, the modern Bayless, the, the secular humans, give the chance a power. First of all, chance doesn't exist. It's not a thing. How can you give it a power to do things? But that's the position they're taking. But God's miracles are also answered to this modern Baalistic uh, uh, response as well. Miracles do not happen randomly, but they happen with a purpose. Miracles performed by God do not happen in just a random order. He has a purpose and a plan as to when he's going to use them. To put it another way, the timing of miracles refutes Baalism and its philosophy of chance. While the action of the miracle that refutes Baalistic philosophy is process as well. So the timing and the action of a miracle would destroy the philosophy of Baalism. Because the Christian God is a person, the miracle is personal and thus has a purpose and thus has a timing that no philosophy of chance and process can account for. This is seen especially in that God of the Bible predicts in advance what his miracles will be. And I, the ten plagues in Egypt is a good example. There's no way a philosophy of chance can have predictions. Since how can you predict something that is totally by chance? So and these miracles of, of the Bible and the scripture totally refute Baalism and modern secular humanism. Predictions are only possible in a context of regularity or normalcy. We can predict that the sun will rise tomorrow because it always does. The Baals can make that same prediction because of his philosophy of process. But the striking thing about the God of Scripture is that he predicts the exceptions. He predicts the miracles. And this is something utterly outside the philosophy of Baalism, secular humanism, and utterly outside the capacity of a human. So I'm going to stop there. Any comments or questions before we close? A lot to grasp there, I think. the word of his mouth. Yep. Yep. He's in control of every atom. He hangs every star out there. Yep. Oh, we serve a wonderful God. All right. Well, let's close. Lord God, we thank you for the blessed time we've had in your word. May we have a further understanding of who you are. May we draw closer to you by being a humble spirit seeking forgiveness of our sins. May we dwell upon the truth of, of the cross of Calvary as we gather around your table this day. May we seek forgiveness as we approach the table of remembrance. Oh Lord God, we thank you uh, for your miracles. We thank you for the miracle of our salvation. We pray that you be with us in the after hour. Be with the pastor. Be with Micah this afternoon. The Lord, touch him in a special way in Jesus' name.
Amen.